yes, this is the Hardcore Marketing Show. My name is Casey Cheshire, and I am your host for this epic journey today. And the show actually has a sponsor. What? Cheshire Impact. Who are these guys? Now that name sounds so familiar, Casey. On a mission to help you maximize Pardot and Salesforce. That's CheshireImpact.com. Bam. Now, my guest, I'm very excited to introduce you all to him today. He is often referred to as the bullseye marketing guy. He's a marketing strategist, and I would say a conversion experience expert. He's also a keynote speaker. He mentors startups MIT. He is the author of Bullseye Marketing, which we are going to talk about, president of Revenue Associates, Louis Gudima. How are you, sir? Good, Casey. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Man, I have a whole page of your accolades. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> uh, there's just not enough room for it, is there? It, it really is. <laughs> there, no, there's just not enough room. There's never enough room. Yeah. But I'm so glad you're here. The theme for today, you know, oftentimes we do a deep dive into particular topics, but, you know, I'm interested in, in bullseye marketing and just the idea. It's a framework. And one of the things we've been talking about is planning. A lot of times people just jump right into the technology or right into the execution without an overall framework, with an overall plan of how to attack it. So I really just wanted to learn from you today. And, and the way we start this off here is I pass you Thor's hammer. Here you go. And, uh, and what kind of strategy, what kind of bogus strategy are you hearing out there that you just want to smash? Smash some crazy myths for us here. Well, I think, you know, one of the key things, Casey, is that marketing changes so rapidly these days. And what worked 10 years ago certainly may not work now. Yeah. What, even what worked five years ago may not work now. One, one of the true. things that happens is that marketing channels get exhausted by, you know, they become the hot thing and everybody does it. And then after a few years, it, you know, it's not nearly as effective at all. So, for example, social media really peaked organic social media, just posting, tweeting uh, for brands really peaked around 2013. Because back then, you know, if, if you were posting to Facebook or to LinkedIn or Twitter, you, 10 or 15 or even 20% of your followers might see that post. But these days, it's more, less than 2%. Jeez. You know, because a lot of the, uh, the social media platforms about five years ago said, well, first of all, most people are interested in seeing the posts of their family and friends and on LinkedIn professional colleagues, are, they're not very interested in these posts from brands. But also, you know, we, we've now aggregated hundreds of millions of people, or in the case of Facebook, billions of people. Yeah. And like any other media platform, you know, they decided they were gonna charge to get your message for a company to get its message in front of those people. Rat so, bastards. <laughs> totally understandable. It, totally wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna be a free ride forever. Right. Uh, so that really peaked about five years ago, you know, and the same thing is true in mm. inbound marketing or content marketing. Um, you know, 12 years ago when inbound was first uh, described or, or put out there, there was way, way fewer web pages or much less content. Sure. You, you had a much better chance of getting your content ranked high and, and to get some significant traffic. Yeah. But these days, uh, you know, the, the, the websites with a lot of domain authority are the ones that get the high rankings. The majority of clicks are on just the first three links on the first page. Uh, 
there was a study done by AREFs, the, uh, the SEO tool company, that found that only one in 20 pieces of new content even gets to page one in the first year, yep. let alone to those first three uh, you know, positions. In the first year. In the first year. And, and so, you know, you can, you can, if you're a small or mid-sized company that hasn't been blogging or posting a lot of content and hasn't built up a lot of domain authority in your industry, yeah. you know, you, you have a very low chance of getting your content ranked high enough to produce much traffic unless it's a really, really highly focused piece of content that, Super niche, yeah. that no one else has put out yet. You know, this makes uh, sense because I remember back in the back in the day, probably what year, what year do you think it was the in the heyday in battle? Well, for for content, you know, that that really has been a, a slower decline, I sure. would say, uh, in terms of the effectiveness for for smaller midsize companies, uh, you know, whereas with social media, you can really just see it drop off the cliff in 2013. Totally. Yeah, I experienced uh, that. I, I actually had a bunch of tweet ups that I was hosting and we were just meeting up random people and we we're having fun in restaurants and social was just happening. And then all of a sudden it just sort of, yeah, it sort of just falls off. It's not cool anymore. And I also remember SEO, you know, we were always would tell people, okay, look, you can start SEO, but you're not going to see your results for three to six months. But it sounds like now for based on this AREF report, it's now it's like, you may not see results for a year, if that. Yeah, or even longer. Yeah. Uh, and it, again, it depends on what industry you're in. If, if five years ago, you were blogging about uh, artificial intelligence or blockchain, you could have gotten high rankings <laughs> and a lot of traffic. Yeah. But if you start blogging about AI and blockchain today, you're, got, <laughs> you're buried. You don't have a chance, right? And so... Uh, Unless, again, you do some very, very niche thing. You know, if you said maybe blockchain for this particular industry, which right. no one else has written about, then you might be able to get high ranking for that. You know, one of the funny things on, on my website, the Revenue and Associates website, uh, the number one most visited page, and this has been for years, is a blog post I wrote, oh, God, two, three, maybe four years ago about the Disney Company value proposition. Really? Yeah, and huh. it's because no one else has written about the Disney value proposition. <laughs> and if you search for, you know, Walt Disney Company value proposition, I'm the top link because it's unique. It doesn't drive any You are. Business. You're actually number one. Yeah, it doesn't drive any business for me, but <laughs> it's a unique piece of content uh, that I just happened to have written when I noticed that they didn't have a very good value proposition. And if they made it more customer centric, uh, it could be much better. Right. Uh, so that's a great example of niche content. But let me give you an example that actually drives traffic for, for someone. Uh, this company, I, I, I'm not working with them, but, but someone else I know, uh, where they have uh, a service that is in many cities. It's, it's, it's used in many cities. And what they did was they produced a piece of content about the local regulations in each of these cities. And so if you search for the local regulations in Dallas or in Seattle, you know, it's either 
the city's website or this company's piece of content. That's what you're going to find. <laughs> and, and so that content by itself doesn't drive traffic, but it brings the right people to the, to the company, to their website. Then they see the offering and then they, they get leads from that. So that kind of really hyper-focused piece of content can, uh, but for you know, for that traditional inbound approach where you're supposed to flood the zone with hundreds of pieces of content, right. you know, that's just not going to work these days for most companies. Interesting. So socials out, you know, inbound though, you know, HubSpot championed that for a long time. And, oh, and they still you know, do. I guess, yeah, right. They still do. I, yeah. I keep waiting for them to uh, separate themselves out from that a little bit because there was actually a blog post a while back where um, it was, Someone at Pardot, you know, we're buddies with them, and Mike Volpe, who was helps by the time. Yeah, they were saying crazy things like, "Oh, you don't need marketing automation; you just need inbound." I'm like, come on, guys, you you should you should be doing a little bit of everything here. Um, but yeah, yeah, like the crazy talk around the the Kool Aid of inbound. I mean, all things in moderation, including moderation, right? So, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they redefine HubSpot does redefine inbound so now you know for years advertising was the boogeyman of uh inbound marketing that was the enemy that True. was in that was interrupting uh <laughs> right and now they hubspot has advertising tools and and they even say oh we don't know where people got the impression that advertising isn't part of inbound you know if you guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> I, I think i know where they heard that <laughs> So, um, so they do kind of try to redefine it to the point where now, it, you know, if, if you follow what they say now, it doesn't really have much of a definition. But, you know, if you think of what the classic definition of inbound was, you know, that is, is certainly not effective for most companies. Right. And that's actually how we got connected was you had written um, an article about inbound, about HubSpot. And the direction yeah. they're going with it, you know, needing to eventually drop that and move on. Well, yeah, and I, I guess in your program notes, you could put a link to the piece. On, I will. I'll do that. Yeah, on the OpenView site, which is a blog post. You know, the title was "Inbound Has Passed Its Expiration Date." Right, which caught and, my attention. <laughs> yeah, well, it caught the attention of a lot of people, and I got a lot of positive feedback from that. Uh, you know, the chief growth officer of Marketo uh, reposted it. And uh, is that Jill? Oh no, yeah. growth officer. Oh, okay, yeah, good. Jill Raleigh. Yeah, uh, and other people, uh, you know, some other prominent uh, tech and marketing executives, you know, reached out to me to say they agreed and thought it was a good piece. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a valuable piece for people to read. You know, I, I've I've always, you know, that whole moderation thing we were talking about earlier. You know, have good content; it's going to fuel a lot of your marketing. But to wait and hope that Father Google will bring you your business. It's like the most fickle thing. Panda, penguin, who knows? Some Something changes in the, the algorithm. And maybe even if you did spend a year getting to number one, you may not be there next after that. So it, it's like it's, it could be a good source. Many people it is, um, organically at least. But you got you to gotta be looking at all the different channels. So I'm glad to see you dispel some of the, the, the legacy myth around that. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, content certainly is very valuable for telling your story. You know, it's your chance to tell your story in your right. words, to highlight your customers and what you've done for others and, and how you work. 
what kind of culture you have, what your what your employees are like, and and so forth. So, you know, you you don't want to have like a minimalist website, uh, but just don't expect a, a ton of inbound traffic from it. Right, right. Still create the content, but really, what we're getting at is it's not just going to be discovered magically anymore. You know, yeah. it, like you could have the best white paper that no one reads. So you actually have to do some things to get out there, get that in front of the right people. Yeah. And that's usually paid these days. Right. Um, right. Or, you know, some other things, you know, that I talk about in my book. And that's really where the bullseye framework came out of was realizing in the work that I was doing with companies um, that some of these approaches weren't working anymore. Right. Uh, and I'm certainly not the only one who realized that, uh, but then uh, developed this bullseye framework, this bullseye marketing approach as the the techniques that are the fastest and frankly, the, the least expensive, the, the lowest risk. Uh, that's what's in the center of the bullseye right. ways for companies to, to actually grow their market and their, their leads and sales quickly rather than those other approaches like inbound or social that are, are very slow and, and may never work at all. Cool. I'm ready to get into it. So we've crushed the myth around social being your thing to go to right now. Um, we've crushed the idea of inbound being your, your one thing that's going to save your company right now. So we've got all these things. Marketing's changed. I, I love that. First thing I heard from you was you got to keep evolving your marketing. And yeah, absolutely. I like, I get comfortable in a source that I like or in a channel or in a methodology, but the market's evolving. And you know, if I'm still tweeting and expecting that to drive the majority of my business, something's going on here. So, so we've smashed that that's out. So take us into the bullseye kingdom. How, how, what is the real right approach to this? Yeah. And maybe five years from now, I'll be saying, boy, that bullseye approach is really dated. But you know, <laughs> in, t in 2018, I'm putting my stake in the ground with bullseye marketing. Yeah. So what I describe in the book, uh, first of all, phase one is taking full advantage of your existing marketing assets. Okay. So most, and this is a little bit of a tweak on this if you're a startup, but I'm going to assume that you're a company that's been around for a few years. And most companies have marketing assets that they just aren't aware of and they're not taking advantage of. And so certainly in the very center of the bullseye is the customer and, and understanding your customer and actually talking to them and listening, which many companies don't do, creating a superior customer experience, uh, selling more to existing customers and focusing more on that than always trying to uh, you know, uh, land new brands, new uh, logos, because it's five to 25 more times more expensive to close a new account than it is to grow right. an existing one. Okay. Um, and to have customer referral programs and, you know, to get those references, both in terms of reference quotes, which are gold, uh, but, but, you know, actually asking customers, you know, who should I be talking to? Who do you know? that, that uh, could use my service that you could introduce me to. Those kinds of things uh, many companies aren't doing. You know, another one is email lists. Um, all the time I have conversations with companies, uh, small and mid-sized companies who have thousands or, or, or tens of thousands of email contacts. And when I say, how many uh, times a year do you email them? And they'll say, well, around the holidays. <laughs> you know, McKinsey says, 
email marketing is 40 times more effective than social media for Jeez. customer acquisition. And in my experience, that's been true. Uh, and it costs almost nothing. You can have a 10,000 person email list. You can email as many times as you want to on platforms like MailChimp or, or Constant Contact for less than $100 a month. True. You know, it's peanuts. Now, you didn't acquire them by email though, right? I mean, you can, you can meet someone via social, whereas email, unless they're getting forwarded around, you found them some other way. Are we saying list buying is 40, 40X no, more effective? No, or? not list buying. You got to build an organic list. You got to build a house list. list. Okay. Uh, and it's customers. It's people who have come to your website, downloaded things. You know, this gets into this whole discussion about gating or not gating content and so forth. Yeah. You, know, you want to go down of, that rabbit hole? No, that's, that's marketing, you know, uh, that's graduate level. Okay. Uh, we're we're just going to stick right now to the basics. Basics. Let's do it. Uh, you know, another one is the website. So you got traffic come to your website. Most companies uh, have poor uh, messaging on their website. They don't, have com they don't have a compelling differentiating message that's really clear and, and easy to understand. Uh, and three quarters of companies, three out of four companies, uh, and I've surveyed this of, of B2B companies for 50 to 1,000 employees, three out of four had no apparent calls to action or conversion devices on their website. Jeez, three out of four? Yeah, three out Heck of four. People. And so, you know, 99, literally 99.9% .9 of the people who are coming to their website come and go and they have no idea who they are or what they want or if they could do business with them. And, yeah. you know, it's increasing the calls to action so that you could get in front of those people and start to have a conversation with them. You know, that can be a huge difference. Um, you know, another thing is, is the collaboration between your marketing and sales teams and, and doing things like account-based marketing and targeted uh, selling programs that, uh, you know, especially for B2B companies can be some of the fastest ways to get new business. So these are all uh, things that, that, you know, typically cost very little to, yeah. to implement. They really are a change of, of focus more than anything else. And they can produce results in, in a matter of, of weeks or a few months instead of years uh, that it can take something like social media or inbound. Uh, to take. Yeah, that's a great point. Especially the idea that the fact that people are already on your website. Yeah. Unless you've some not created one, there probably are people there already. Just the majority of them either, you know, the, they're seeing a thousand different things they could click on. So and no calls to action. So, okay, I'm going to leave. No, no strong call to action here. Get this thing. I'm here to help you. Here's what we do specifically. Um, and I actually remember that story of the, um, that one company you helped out where they did labeling and yeah. the, the first, the first time, you know, the first version of that website was just this, it was cutesy and it was unclear what they did. Yeah. They produced custom food labels for major brands, companies like Whole Foods and Wegmans and Dunkin Jeez. Donuts. And yet you came to their website. You didn't even know that's what they did. Yeah, it kind of uh, like a pet food company to start with. First, <laughs> they had these, Yeah, they had some pictures of Dalmatians on their on their homepage. Uh, so we got pictures of of their actual, you know, food uh, 
labels on the containers, on the products, right. you know, and they have great looking labels, uh, really sexy, you know, attractive professional things. So, you know, a, a big difference there, but, you know, a, a simple mistake that many companies make aside from the, the three out of four that don't have any calls to action. A lot of companies use these carousels on their homepage and they have, you know, three or four messages that cycle through. Yeah. And they think, oh, we can, you know, jam three or four messages down the, the visitor's throat. But in fact, they end up jamming nothing mm-hmm. because it all gets diluted uh, and goes by too fast. And, and if they had one compelling message instead, one compelling differentiator, uh, that would be much more effective than trying to, uh, to have three or four. So these are all things that cost almost nothing and, right. and uh, can really have an impact. Uh, then in the second phase of the bullseye approach, as you start to look for new customers, uh, you get in front of customers who want to buy now. So this is using what you know, we call intent data, which is right. fairly new. Uh, I mean, it wasn't called that. 10 years ago much, or there wasn't as much available. But, you know, our markets are much smaller than we think they are. Because Interesting. we may think, we may have, you know, a, uh, a certain type of customer that we're selling to, but unless we're selling something like food or coffee that people, you know, use every day, uh, good example. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are some products and services that people and companies only acquire every few months or every several years. True. And, and so if they're not in market, it's not very effective or efficient to be marketing to them. Yeah, uh, true. Or, you know, let's say you're a service provider. If someone's happy with the, the service provider they're already using, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. not, they're just not looking for someone else. Right. So how can you identify those those potential customers who are in market now and certainly search advertising is one of those ways. Cause if you can't mm-hmm. get your content high on page one, uh, you can get your ads high on page one and you, right. can, you know, ramp up that program really quickly. Right. Uh, and, and if you really focus on the keywords that show intent rather than broad interest in the, in the topic, uh, you can help, you know, focus in on, on customers that want to buy soon. Um, you know, there's tools for your website, again, where you can identify who are the people or who are the accounts that suddenly, unlike last month, are coming back and looking at our site a lot. Right. And that can be a real tip-off that something is happening. They're now seriously considering you in a way they weren't a month ago, and you need to reach out and, and be in touch with them. You know, Intent is such a powerful thing. In my head, I've only really given Google searches, you know, king of intent. Are there other places you can go to try to find people yeah. that are in that buy now to, or they're at least shopping, they're in the market? Yeah, well, the one is, as I was saying, you know, how they interact with you and your content. So if, okay. if yeah. they're looking at your website, if they're opening your emails, if they're downloading your, your infographics, if they're attending your webinars, all right. those kinds of uh, things ramp up, uh, you know, that can be a real signal. And then there's third party intent data. So you've got companies like tech target 
and Aberdeen and uh, Bambora and the Big Willow who um, aggregate intent data across, uh, in some cases, hundreds of websites. Uh, again, looking for, in that B2B space, mm -hmm. you know, is a company, are the people from one particular company suddenly searching for a particular kind of piece of equipment or type of service and they call it a surge. Is there a surge of interest in that? Right. that okay. wasn't there a month yeah. ago. And then you have companies on the consumer side like Kroger and Walmart and Amazon, and they have intent data. Uh, Google and Facebook, uh, when you look at how you can target your ads, they have intent data. Mm. And so there's all these sources where you can be uh, using intent data to uh, focus your ads more effectively. And that's uh, what I talk about in the book. That's the second phase of bullseye marketing. And then the Got third it. phase. Well, hold on. Let me just review real quick <clears throat> Okay. with my bullseye brain here. Phase one, taking full advantage of the content of the marketing assets you have. We talked about content. We talked about the website, conversions. We may come back to conversions because that's fun. Yeah, all um, those marketing assets yeah. that you already have. All those things, not just the content, but like the assets you have. So actually fully utilizing those, making them more efficient, optimizing them. And once you've done that, you got us into phase two, going for the people with intent, the people that are in the buy now phase. People exactly. That are more ready than less ready. Got right. it. So then exactly. now we're into phase three. And phase three is where you cast that wider net. Okay. This, this is where you do these long-term brand building and awareness programs like content, webinars, social media, display advertising uh, that can help build awareness about your brand. And so that a year or two from now, when someone is looking to buy what you sell, yep. they've been following you for a while and they've been, you know, I, I have done not just when I had my own agency before business development and, and now for my agency, but then in between those two agencies I did was VP of business development for two other uh, marketing agencies. Cool. And uh, one time we were contacted by a VP of marketing um, at a, at a you know, prospective company, a uh, good sized company, like $700 million revenue company. And I said to her, nice. um, you know, how'd you hear about us? And she said, well, you were everywhere. So I figured I had to talk to you. <laughs> you know, so that's phase three. So in the yeah. long run, you want that omni-channel of program. Right. But if you start with that, if you don't already have phases one and two built out mm. and, you, and you start with just social media or you start with just content, very likely after six or eight months, you're, you're going to say, well, this isn't doing anything. Why, why are we wasting our time on this? We knew marketing wouldn't work for us. Uh, but if you do it in the three-phase approach that I describe, you can get results quickly and inexpensively. You can build confidence and grow that uh, full omni-channel approach you know, and, and have a really effective uh, marketing program. This makes sense. And I think it's important that we've got, you've written this book because a lot of the tendency is to go to phase three first, you know, or totally go to the, the bells and whistles. 
I don't know if marketers were all cats and dogs here, but it feels like it sometimes. We're like, so marketing ROI, this, this planning, we're gonna, squirrel, let's go do, let's go do X. Oh, there's this new technology that Facebook has that lets us go do these weird things. And you do those weird things and then you send them to the homepage, right? You yeah. spend like $10 on that click, they get to your homepage. So they're like, why am I even here? And then they leave. It's crazy. Right. And so what I like about this is, is and I picked up this word earlier, it's a change of focus. You know, all we're trying to do is focus your next step. And then when I was thinking about when you were talking about first phase was look, if you've got limited amount of time or budget or both, like we all do in marketing, then if you're going to focus on one thing, focus here first, because that's right. going to have the most bang for your buck. And then once you've exhausted all that, now you're cranking and to your point, you're going to have some confidence because when you start making those particular changes first, Things are going to start working. You're going to start getting in that groove. You're going to start getting more leads, more qualified leads. All the goodness is going to start happening. Now you can you can pile on by going to phase two, and and selling to people that. Are, so that eventually, by the time you get to phase three, you have the confidence that comes from crushing things. And what I would add to that is, when you've got the confidence that usually means the leadership team has confidence in you. And lo and behold, those budget strings that were tight as a bow constrictor are now just like. Oh, you want some more money? Would you like more money next quarter? It's like, <laughs> uh, I think I'm good, but, but great. Yeah, sure. I'll take, you know, it's like, sure. More marketing spend, but that spend comes from reporting the ROI from having those successes and the confidence, you know, that you get from this focus. It's really cool. Well, I haven't met a marketer yet who had too much money, thrown at know, him. Right? <laughs> but it, it certainly is a way to protect your budget and to say, you know, if anyone wants to say we need to cut someplace, you can say, well, look, look at the results we're getting. But, you know, it's really critical to do those phase one programs first, uh, because if you do phase two or three without taking care of phase one, you know, you haven't laid the foundation for their success. You, you need to have that, you know, good understanding of your customer, the website messaging, the calls to action, the conversion experiences, uh, and so forth before you go into things like paid search ads um, or intent data or these uh, content or social media programs. Because uh, if you don't have that set up, you're really just kind of trying to fill a bucket that's full of holes. Totally. A holy bucket. And that, <laughs> and that water is leaking out. I was just actually watching yeah. a rerun of a Survivor thing where these – these teams were carrying this big wheel with water in the middle over these obstacles and everything. And you had to fill up a bucket on the other end, but as they're carrying it, they're just water's leaking out all over the place. And just reminded me of your, your bucket analogy, because it, it's like you, you got the water in the first place, but now you're just losing it all over the place because you, you, you don't have your foundation set up. So you're all, yeah. Uh, it's crazy. Why, why, why are we not doing this in marketing? Do we just not know any better? Have you just not seen your book? Um, but even if I gave someone your book, we need to actually get them to follow the path. So what, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a couple reasons. First of all, um, most companies, you know, most, uh, you know, this survey I did of, of 351 B2B companies with 52 oh, wow. employees, um, you know, I looked at these 351 companies and, and these are not solopreneurs or five person companies. These are companies with 50 to a thousand employees. They're, they're actually the, the heart of the U S economy. According to the census bureau, 
companies that size employ more than three times as many people as companies, enter, enterprises with over a thousand employees. So you know, these, these truly are you know, hugely important to the economy. And yet uh, I found, a, and, and this was a shock to me, yeah. that software companies were, were very aggressive uh, users of, of modern marketing programs, uh, but companies in all other industries such as manufacturing, medical devices, professional services, were hardly marketing at all. You know, wow. very few of them were. And so first of all, it's not in the DNA of, of non-software companies to be marketing. But secondly, the big challenge for companies these days is, you know, 25, 30 years ago, there used to be uh, only six or eight ways to reach a customer, you know, print, oh, yeah. direct mail, TV, radio, billboards. Now there are dozens of channels. You know, you've got social media and email and websites and virtual reality and augmented reality and, and on and on. Right. And, uh, and you, there are literally thousands and thousands over, I think, 7,000 vendors now selling software related to marketing. And mm -hmm. they're all out there pushing you know, our, our approach is the approach you have to do. You know, right. you need to have this kind of, of program. And frankly, um, you know, just social media has gotten a tremendous amount of buzz because we do spend a majority of our time online on social media. True. And so in the book, I describe ways, again, hyper-focused ways, not just organic posts or tweets, uh, but hyper-focused ways that you can take advantage of social media. Uh, you know, for example, social media advertising, which you can, you know, they have a ton of data of their users. And right. you can really focus based on demographics and psychographics and interests and even, as I was saying, intent. You can upload your email list to mm. LinkedIn or Facebook. Right. And so now you get your same message that you were emailing to people they see on their social channels, things like that. But so the, the reason is, you know, that uh, so there are ways to, to do these things, mm -hmm. but there's uh, so much chatter uh, that for, for companies that haven't been doing it, and even marketers who, you know, are, are kind of experienced in it, you know, it can be overwhelming. It's noisy, right? It's noisy. And then it's very noisy. to your point, when you have software folks and there's this blurry line because you want to do thought leadership, but when, man, what I hate is when the thought leadership from some company pitching something just gets so grossly overstated, like all these other sources are dead. The only one that's around is mine, you know, come to me. Yeah. And then they're using VC backed funds to just push that strategy on everyone. It's like, guys, oh, that's so gross. It's not even the case, you know? Um, yeah, well, when they have tens loud. of millions of dollars to push it out, yeah. you, don't, you don't want to take your, your marketing strategy from a marketing software company. Yes. You know, because they're just going to be pushing their solution. Oh, totally, totally. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, I think that's a major reason why, you know, these challenges are out there uh, these days. It makes sense. Um, man, you surveyed 351 companies. 
what else did you get from that? I mean, what kind of learnings? Because I can't imagine. It's the heart, to your point, the heart of the economy, the heart of you know, more people are employed. I'm sure there's like a treasure trove of things. Were you sitting in your lair just flipping through? Yeah. The data not, and not, not, uh, not far removed. So uh, <laughs> it wasn't even a survey. It was more of a study because what I was looking okay. for, I had these nine digital marketing programs that I was looking for that I could see from the outside if they were doing them at all. Were they aware at all of this? Oh, Not how yeah. well were they doing it, but for example, did they have a marketing automation program? I right. could tell from you website tag. Right. Yep. Um, did they even have web analytics like Google Analytics on their website? Did they have, this was uh, more important four years ago, the first time I did this study, yep. and then I redid it this year with the same 351 companies, but did they have a, a responsive, mobile-friendly website? Yeah, uh, you can tell that were they, too. Were wow, they creating you... content? Yeah. Were they active on social media? Were they doing uh, search advertising? All these things that I could tell. And so using this nine-point wow. nine scorecard, uh, the software companies were typically using five, six, seven, many of them even eight or nine of these programs and the median was uh, that they were using seven out of nine. The wow. non-software companies were using typically just one, two, or three of the programs, and the median was two. Two out of nine. And, yeah, which means yeah. nothing, you know, because yeah. they got one point just for having Google Analytics on their website. Right. Oh, and right. Then, which is easy to do, even if you don't look at it. Even if you don't look at it, right. Yeah. And so this year I revisited those companies and those non-software companies had increased the median from two to three, which still is like nothing. Well done, guys. Mostly, mostly that was because uh, most companies redo their website every four years mm -hmm. or so. Mm-hmm. These days, if you're going to redo your website, any good web developer is going to make it responsive. Yep. And so they had gone, there was a huge increase from 20% to 80% of these companies having responsive websites. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, so they got a couple bonus points there. Right. Whether, but it wasn't part of an integrated marketing program. Right. The only and, other program that increased significantly was posting to social media. Right. And you know what I think of that. Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> but but pr some things may have even declined. Uh, like there, it, it looked like there was even a slight decline in things like um, content uh, mm. development sure. or uh, or conversion optimization. How about the marketing automation? What what do you recall any takeaways from that? Because obviously I swim in that all day. Yeah. So <laughs> so the marketing automation. Um, the margin of error was about 5% in my survey. Cool. Now, is that better than the election or, or worse? I think, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think that's, I think that's just slightly worse. But the, the can I believe what you're saying? <laughs> I think you can. Okay. <laughs> uh, because the interesting thing is that um, marketing automation appeared to grow a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, roughly from... I, uh, I think it was about 20 to 24% of companies, uh, which is still, you know, only one out of four of these bigger SMBs. Um, right. I was, was going to say for a second, I was going to say, well, HubSpot has like 8,000 little mom, but that's not who you're looking at. You're looking at those 
larger companies, 50, I think you said to a thousand employees. Exactly. Okay. Right. It's probably like two um, HubSpot accounts. Yeah. Well, I mean, HubSpot says that it's, you know, focused on 20 to 2000 employees. So, okay. you know, you know, they're in there too, but they certainly have many clients who are, are under 20. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, and there's others that are for small companies like Infusionsoft or Acton are, right. you know, very focused on smaller. And so there that was, would count, that would count, but, but you're looking yeah. at the bigger companies. And so the bigger companies though, man, 50 to, I would expect them all to have marketing automation by now. Um, but I wonder, you, I don't know if you recall, I mean, this is on off the cuff, but I'm sure the, the software companies all, you know, they had much more adoption of that than say yeah. manufacturing companies. And, yeah, it was much higher. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the, the exact figure, but it, I think it was like uh, 70% or, or so. Okay. Yeah. For the software companies. Sure. Uh, and uh, there was actually an interesting split between which marketing automation program they were using. Really? Yeah, because the the software companies heavily preferred Marketo. Yeah. And the non-software companies heavily preferred HubSpot. Interesting. And in and in both cases, among the companies that actually were using marketing automation. Uh, about 60% of those software companies were using Marketo and about 60% of the non-software companies were using HubSpot. Interesting. You know, we do, we do these. Um, so I love where this ties in because when we look at people with marketing automation, we go then and, and we have uh, similar, it's a, it's a, it's a 10 point checklist and we actually have to sort of get down and dirty with people and, and mind meld with them to find out the answers to these things uh, called the CSI. But we found with our, our 10 step points of, are they actually using marketing automation? The, um, the average we're yeah. seeing is about three out of 10 um, in terms of use. A lot of people. You mean that they have it, but they're not actually yeah, using it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do know, you know, I couldn't tell in general yeah. how well they were using it. I, I, but I could tell that the majority well over half of the HubSpot companies did not have active marketing program, uh, content programs. Yeah. And so even though, you know, uh, HubSpot was really pushing the idea of inbound marketing and they were a HubSpot customer, they were not very aggressive in their own content. Yeah. Uh, we see that a lot. We, we help people migrate off of HubSpot and Marketo mm -hmm. and, and Eloqua onto Pardot. Yeah. And, um, and, Typically, the, the less you've done, the easier it is to migrate, right? So right. HubSpot migrations are pretty easy normally. Maybe like yeah. I can count on a hand how many people where they've actually built out. That's why I was surprised to hear HubSpot was so well represented for those larger companies. Uh, normally, people grow off of it after a bit. So Yeah, well, we're talking about 60% of 24%. Oh, so, good point. Yeah. You know, it's, I can't do that math, but I understand the, where it's going. <laughs> yeah. So you're down below 15% of all those companies because most of them don't have any marketing automation program at all. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's almost, you know, if you ever read Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm. Yep. Uh, you know, it, it's almost as if marketing technology as a, as a whole has not deeply penetrated the mainstream market. It's certainly uh, been adopted into that early adopter, innovator, 
side of, of the Agreed. technology adoption curve. Uh, and it's certainly in, you know, your large um, consumer brands, you know, your P&Gs, you know, um, your large B2B companies, certainly on the software side. Uh, but, I, but I've worked with companies, uh, for example, I was doing some consulting last year to a several billion dollar manufacturer. Um, and one of their goals was to get Salesforce implemented as a CRM uh, because they had no CRM. This is a you know, multi-billion dollar company. Yeah. And- uh, Would they have I mean, sell spreadsheets for that? It's the worst. And, and I, uh, you know, um, they, they had no marketing automation mm -hmm. uh, in, in most cases. And even one of their divisions, which was a, a several hundred million dollar division, didn't even have a responsive website. Right. Interesting. Go figure. You know what? I've experienced too, because um, we basically became this, this um, I'm just a long time user of marketing automation. And, and I was right there when um, Pardot got acquired by Salesforce. And so um, I'd almost even call it the heyday. But what this heyday really is, if I'm thinking about crossing the chasm, if people haven't read this book, go check it out. It, it'll help you understand a lot of just how things come about, new things come in. And when they really get popular, I guess what I was really experiencing was the, to your point, the innovators, the early adopters. I don't know if it's even crossed the chasm yet. I, it, it's, um, or chasm. Is it chasm? Is it chasm? I say chasm, but uh, I've, I've heard. It might be seven, a tomato thing, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I've heard that there's 17 pronunciations for the word pecan. So uh, <laughs> I, I think we can go with whatever we want to here. What do you go with on, on that nut? <laughs> you go I, with I, uh, pecan. I think I see pe pecan, pecan. Yeah, yeah I'm confused, right. man. I don't there's, know. I there's a lot of them. <laughs> um, so I was saying earlier, though, I think, I think what I've experienced was that um, early adopters happened very quickly for marketing automation, um, or at least in terms of um, when Pardot came on the scene. Um, I mean, Eloqua will say it didn't take a while, but they, they weren't easy to use. But when you use things like Pardot, HubSpot, I think it's very – very quick that those early adopters came in there. But, to, you know, it feels like to me, because I'm in this stuff all the time that just everyone has it. Well, naturally all of our, all of our customers do. Right. But, right. but everyone doesn't. And, and that number is accurate. I think serious decisions had one too, around, you know, 20 so percent, but I'm sure that's increased since then. So right around a, a quarter of the companies having marketing automation and it's been like 10, eight, 10 years now. Oh, more than that. More, I guess I mean, more than that, yeah. I think Eloqua, you know, that's at least 15 years old. Yeah, but I don't know if that counts because it's uh, – well, I guess it does because oh, it, sure, it's right? hard to use. Uh, but, but you're right. It's been – Yeah, all it's of more it's of an enterprise around. tool. But yeah. uh, no, I think that uh, to me this was a shock. Uh, yeah. And believe me, four years ago, the first time I did this study, I, I went around depressed for weeks. <laughs> sure. I was like, I just assumed that people knew about – these you know advanced digital marketing tools and and the other thing that's important to understand is then I, I looked at the software companies and I said okay does this digital marketing scorecard really matter you know am I measuring anything meaningful and um, I correlated the score on this zero to nine scorecard with their growth rate mm. and it was like a perfect line how'd you and measure growth rate I mean you can't really ask them. 
Ba yeah, the well, the ones that were publicly disclosing their Got finances. It. Okay. So either they were public companies or they had announced you know, results or they had been acquired or somehow their, their revenue numbers had come out. Huh. And so uh, the companies that scored eight or nine yeah. were growing roughly five times faster than the companies scoring zero to three. Jeez. And uh, like I said, it was a perfect curve, zero to three, four to five, six to seven, eight to nine. Um, because if you're not embracing, if you're not doing digital marketing today, you're not marketing. Yeah, really. You no, know, if you, you know, this manufacturing company I worked with, their idea of marketing was trade shows and brochures. Yep. You know, and yet there was a huge amount of digital conversation around their industry and tens of thousands of searches a month and social interactions and, and all sorts of things wow. uh, happening around their industry. And, and sometimes older executives don't get that. Right. You know, I'm a young guy. You're a young guy, Casey. But, you know, sometimes... Yeah. Sometimes those those people in their fifties or you know, or sixties, you know, they may not be as as uh, active on sure. on social media or on the internet. Uh, but millennials who are increasingly not just influencers but decision makers, mm -hmm. you know, that's the way that they're that's where they live, and they're certainly online for both you know personal and professional reasons, and. Uh, you know, so you have to be out there. Companies have to be out there uh, in that digital virtual space as, as well as the traditional. Right. It really seems like that, that sort of phased, um, different from your phases, more of the, the evolution where we started out traditional marketing, you know, mad men, billboards, radio, uh, guesstimating what, where the impact was happening, and then digital kept bringing things onto the computer and we got more tracking and better numbers and better, more directional ROI, unless you're e-commerce, you had some really good ROI calculations. And, and then from there, once you're at that stage, that's where that marketing automation and some of these more advanced tools made, made a difference. But yeah, I actually uh, maybe two months ago, talked to someone who was still in that early phase. It was really weird. It was like one of those uh, old Mel Gibson movies or something where someone was frozen in time. <laughs> You're talking to them and they're like, yeah, we do mostly billboards and radio advertising. Like, Whoa, this is crazy. Yeah. You know, like, but that, that was, that was status quo to your point. It, it's always evolving. So not only can we not use the marketing we used five years ago, we, Definitely don't want to be relying on what we did 20 years ago. You know, it all depends on where your customer is. I mean, if your customer, that's a good point. you know, if your customer yeah. is at trade shows and you can make that effective, that definitely needs to be part of the mix. But sure. you now I worked with a company a few years ago and we uh, were implementing search advertising for them okay. and they cut back their um, trade shows from 29 to four. Wow. Because, and, and put, plowed that money into search ads because they found that that was much more effective for lead yeah. generation than trade shows were. Right. You know, that usually is going to produce some fights with sales because sales likes to be at trade shows, uh, even if they don't like to stand at a booth. Right. It's the but there's a lot of good, <laughs> there's a lot of good meetings you can have at a trade show. And, sure. you know, when I had my agency, there were, 
there were four or five trade shows a year that were important to us. And, but there were other things that uh, partially it was just showing the flag, that brand awareness, partially yeah. a, a chance to reconnect with current customers and, and get new leads. It, it served a lot of purposes. Uh, but it, it's all about knowing where your customer is and, and getting in front of them where they are. Agreed. And, you know, and tracking the ROI of those two, I, that hopefully that was part of the decision where they paired those back. We had a group that was doing 80 a year and they had no idea which ones were effective or not. So they were like held hostage to keep, they had, they had to keep doing it because it was something was working. They were selling, right? Some, they were getting yeah. new customers. They just didn't know where they came from. So they had, and come to find out it was like super cliche. Um, like this should be in a, you know, in Harvard business, you know, business school case study, but it was like a Pareto rule. It was like a 80, 20, about 30 of the shows were driving new business and effective 50 of them were a complete waste of time and money. And oh, yeah. So, yeah. You, you get rid of that right away and start putting that into search and some other areas where you can actually, you know, test out some, some other channels. Yeah. It's surprising. Uh, you know, how long just from inertia marketing programs can continue. You know, and like sometimes that's what, when people get into a company that they, they really like and they see how it actually works, like, wow, how does this even function? You know, sometimes I think companies are just winging it and, and still staying in business. So, you know, if that's what your com competition is doing and you're following a more focused approach, following these phases, right? They took that, those 50 trade shows, the, the time and the spend, they put that back into your phase one of bullseye, you know, clean up that website. You're not selling puppy chow here. You're selling you know, this amazing, you know, product and, you know, clean that up conversion rates, you know, all those things in phase one, maybe it spills into phase two now. Um, yeah, way more effective, right? Way more effective than one more trade show that you're not doing anything at. Yeah, absolutely. So cool. So cool. And you know, that's just, that's like been my driving mission is just to in, increase that number on that marketing automation. Cause it drives me crazy when people invest in a tool, you know, it's like those billions of people that have the market Marketo and they use it like MailChimp, like, come on guys, that thing's yeah. free. And you're, you're, you know, if you're going to use that great, but if you're going to invest in this tool that can do all these things. And one of the things it can do, like you're talking about with market automation, you can hear intent. You can listen for that automatically throw some autumn, you know, some, some engagements and throw flags in the air. If you have someone who has intent, so sales can reach out, you know, if you're going to use that, actually use it. Oh yeah. Well, I, I had a conversation one time with a VP of marketing uh, and we were, and I could tell that they had a marketing automation on their website. Okay. Uh, you know, they had a marketing automation program in place. Uh, and I asked them how well it was working for them. And he said, oh, not very much. You know, we get analytics, but not much else from it. And I said, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. well, do you know that, you know, it, for example, it could alert you if a prospect comes back that, you know, you've given a, a proposal to someone, you know, your salespeople haven't been able to get in touch with them for six weeks. Suddenly they're returning to your website. You know, your salespeople could get a, an alert about that. That could be yeah. really valuable to you. Yeah. And he said, well, yeah, but that would mean we'd have to integrate it with our CRM and that's going to be too much of a hassle. Oh, my goodness. You know, so, you know, it's, it's one thing to have it. It's another thing to use it well. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, um, I think most comp people who start companies, and I certainly was in that, 
role when I started my agency, my first agency 20 years ago. Um, you know, you have an expertise in a field. You're, you're really good uh, at that product or service. You have ideas around how you can do it better than, than some other companies. Yep. Um, but in many cases, you haven't had a lot of, uh, if any, education or training on business in general. Right. Suddenly you find yourself running a business and, you know, there can be a lot of areas, you know, finance and HR and other things too, besides marketing, mm-hmm. uh, that, that you, you know, you're really kind of uh, doing by the seat of your pants. Totally. And, and so, you know, marketing's one of them and uh, it's an important one and, and you and I know that it can drive growth. Uh, but to people who haven't had much experience with it, who are overwhelmed by all these right. messages, uh, you know, they may just think of it as an expense and, and not a useful investment. Yeah. It, you said earlier, inertia. You have that inertia of a company doing its thing. Hey, this, this doesn't work very well, but it works. You know, cold yeah. calling and blasting people or the trade shows. They, there might be that 5x growth if you adopt, you know, a couple more of these things. Um, but, you know, you're, you are where you are. So it sound, sounds like either those people choose to want to get to that 5x. They want to get that much more growth or eventually they retire and somebody else comes in who, you know, maybe had schooling on it. But if you're waiting to learn about marketing automation at school, you are incorrect, sir. No, not <laughs> you, but like anyone listening out there, if, if, if by the time school is teaching a strategy, you're probably not even using it anymore. So just saying. Well, <laughs> Well, hopefully, I you know I, I hope that some schools will start using my book. Yeah, so that, that would be that would be fine. I'd be okay with that. That'd be great. I, I, you know, I think there's a, a a great opportunity there for uh, college students who are studying marketing. I've I've even had the reaction. One of the uh, Amazon.com reviews said this would be a good mar- uh, book for MBAs. Yeah, because. You know, they're going to come out of there with a lot of theoretical knowledge, but on the first day of work, their boss is going to say, you need to, you know, work on some programs that generate business for us. Right. And this is the the book that can show them uh, a lot of the ways to do that. Right. I agree. I agree. Let's get it. Let's get into all their little mitts. Let's get it yeah. into their hands. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I uh, will definitely post a link to it. Uh, is it on Audible? Do you, have you done any of that yet? I haven't um, because there's over a hundred full color uh, images oh, in the book. Good call. And uh, I just think that without being able to see those examples of, of good marketing, uh, yeah. it, it just loses too much. You know, I, I'm an audible guy, but you know what? I, when I saw your presentation around, you know, that company we talked about earlier, the you know, manufacturing, the labels, Mm-hmm. That spoke a thousand words because their first website, you and I could talk about it for 10 minutes, but to just see it, you go, oh, yeah, okay. And then when you saw yeah. the new one, you went, oh, yeah. Like it looked professional. It looked like they could handle business from Dunkin' Donuts and, you know, whoever else wants to use, you know, large company wants to use them. That picture was worth a thousand words. So I could, I could see the importance of, you know, get a copy of that book, have it, have it you know, you can read, underline, highlight. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, you know, the pictures make a difference for sure. Well, the question that all this creates in me now is like, who, 
are you? <laughs> How did you become the bullseye marketing guy? How did you, you know, I and mean, you've had all these experiences. Maybe just take us back. You know, it's a little Louis days or, you know, what, how, what kind of transformations did you have along the way where you ended up being this, you know, this thought leader? Uh, well, I, I hope I'm a thought leader, but the, uh, uh, you know, you like are. most, I say you like, are. like most digital marketing guys, I grew up in a small farm town in Northern Illinois <laughs> and was in 4-H and showing uh, Suffolk, purebred Suffolk sheep at the county fair. So you showed sheep. Now, what do you have to do? Do you ha is it like showing a dog? Do you have to like groom it and wash it and then? Oh yeah, and, really? And yeah, you, you want them to look their best. Okay. And you okay. want to look your best. And hopefully and they don't try to like roll over in the grass after you just wash them down and wash. no, <laughs> no. Uh, so we, uh, my father was in the cattle business, and wow. uh, so uh, you know, I grew up in a little town. Uh, when I was 12, we moved to a, a medium-sized city, Rockford, Illinois, about 150,000 people. What was that like? You went from like farm kid to suburbia. Yeah, it was okay. It was I mean, okay. You know, there's, yeah. there's some shock there, but, yeah. uh, you know, as we were growing up, the expectation always was, you're not going to live in this town forever. You're going to go to college and, and go someplace else. And, nice. you know, we had visited you know, places like Chicago and New York and, you know, other places. So it wasn't uh, a total shock. And then I went to uh, University of Michigan. And after that, uh, moved out to Boston. And uh, my an initial work, a lot of it was in theater, writing and directing. No kidding. Uh, which uh, is not a bad background for marketing. So have you written plays or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm big into theater too, and I, I wrote a play as well. So, what what kind of plays did you write? Um, largely unproduced ones. <laughs> as have we all. <laughs> See, now I gotta really. But I, I directed also. So you know, at that point, marketing was much more focused on creative, and much less about data. You know, now you need right. that balance you of, do need the of data, yeah. data and technology. You still need the creative, you know, the, the new marketing technologies have not made anything obsolete, but they've added many more skills that a marketing team needs, even if every individual marketer isn't going to have every skill. Right. Um, so you're really like a, like a writer, like so the theater and the writing, all that. And storytelling and storytelling, and storytelling. is, is yeah. you know, so central to marketing. Totally. Uh, and so when I, my first corporate client was Coleco Toys at the height of Cabbage Patch Kids. What was the height of Cabbage Patch Kids? Well, at the height of Cabbage Patch Kids, they sold more Cabbage Patch Kids in the first year than the entire doll category the year before. Oh, what, you, what year was that? Or that, was, that, was, that was in the early 80s. Early right? 80s. Okay, I had one. Yeah. His name was George. I named him after George Washington. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, and they were incredibly popular. And, and yeah. that was a tremendous door opener for me because even, you know, uh, people at other companies, even if they didn't care about talking to me, they were they sure were interested in hearing about the inside story on Cabbage Patch Kids. Cabbage Patch Kids, yeah. So, I, you know, it opened a lot of doors. And then I, because I'm in the Boston area, I started to do a lot more marketing in tech with companies like, you know, Lotus Development and IBM and you know, sure. e EMC and others. 
started to make that transition out of the retail space per se to some more of the tech client software, yeah, but more forward thinking clients. Yeah, and it was a great opportunity to really learn from some of the best marketers in the world. Uh, Very cool. You know, I mean, if you're if you're working with marketers, you know, who are doing the biggest consumer product, you know, of its time, right. or or are at IBM or at venture backed startups, you know, they they know their stuff. Yeah. Uh, the Boston Globe was another big client at my agency. So, okay. uh, uh, and then. Um, transitioned about 20 years ago into the digital space because I saw that's where things were moving. Smart. Um, opened my agency, my first agency in 98. Uh, we were uh, marketing communications for those big companies for the yep. first several years and then uh, changed the business model to a recurring revenue. So I didn't have the, you know, if mm -hmm. the phone stops ringing, you know, you don't know where your next dollar is coming from. True. We became a SaaS company even before it was called SaaS. Back then it was called application service provider. How'd you do that? In a, mar in a marketing space too, you went from, I guess so back we, then there wasn't that many apps, right? There, there weren't that many software tools. Right. So we developed a, a proprietary content management system. Oh, cool. That was focused on the education market. Okay. Uh, small colleges and private schools because when we would talk to small and mid-sized companies about content management, they would say, well, you know, we have a, we don't change our website that much. We have a web monkey who can code a few pages in HTML a month. It's not a big deal. But schools had gotten to the point in the early 2000s where they realized the internet wasn't going away. <laughs> and this Bye. is where, where their <laughs> students were. They had to start doing, you know, they couldn't just have the president's nephew do the website anymore they had to have a professional right. you know website and they had to change their content all day long not just a few times a month but they were constantly putting up new events athletic schedules and scores assignments notices for parents notices for alumni and so they needed tools that made it easy for the staff to do that right and uh, we really put a premium on ease of use yeah, as you should, for sure. Yeah. Especially in SaaS. And so that became, you know, our core business. Uh, we, dev we became one of the top three or four companies in that market. We had clients as far away as Hong Kong. Wow. And uh, so when I sold the company in 2009, it had that recurring revenue that, you know, produced a lot of value yeah. uh, for, the, for the sale. That sweet, sweet recurring revenue. Yeah, we love that recurring revenue. Yes, I'm sure, I'm sure the acquirers did too. Uh, yeah, the sellers, everybody. Hey, Mazel Tov. This is great. This yeah, great they, they, could very, they could very quickly look at it and say, you know, uh, you know, there is a lot of value there. Definitely. And so then I did uh, was VP of business development for two agencies, uh, mid-size agencies, like, you know, 40 to 80 people kind of agencies, yeah. marketing agencies. And then in 2013, went off on my own again, uh, opened Revenue and Associates. And so what we do, uh, two of our major services are um, creating uh, uh, marketing strategies for companies, what I call mm. a marketing strategy sprint, where we work with a company for a, a month and we get a lot of information about them and their competitors and, and do a, a day-long workshop to 
work out a, a strategy and a 12 month action plan. Cool. Uh, and we also do uh, managed marketing services. So for companies that don't have a marketing department and need someone to manage their marketing for them uh, on a more day-to-day -day basis, like search engine ad, you know, ads or redoing their websites or, or emails and things of that sort, yep. uh, you know, we'll provide that service or other kinds of workshops or consulting. Huh. I like the idea of that sprint, the, the plan yeah. up front. Sometimes people, it's not going to take that long to plan, but you need to put that time in there. So you're not just doing the next phase three thing over and over and over again. Yeah. And that you, you start to say, well, in, in, in Q1, you know, or in the first month, we're going to do this. In the second month, we're going to do this. And, you know, we look at the traditional, what programs, what technology, and what people do you need to right. do this. And so, you know, sometimes you have the people internally who can do it. Sometimes you need a consultant like yourself because we're going to implement a marketing automation program in Q2. And so we're going to need cool. a company who knows how to do that. Uh, so, you know, having that 12 month plan, uh, you can start to plan around that and, and what kind of resources you need to really make it successful. For sure. And, you know, maybe we'll chat, we should chat again because I think even the idea of marketers putting together a plan, if we, if we had to do a similar survey to find out who's planning and who's not, typically there's not the planning happening, you know, and yeah, it's not often. Every, all per se, sometimes you're just flying by the seat of your pants to execute the next campaign, but man, just a little bit of preparation and planning can go so far. Yeah. And, you know, especially in the, that uh, huge uh, group of companies out there that are doing very little marketing at all and, yeah. and really, really need a plan to kind of intelligently get into the game. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. A smart way of getting into it. Otherwise, you're going to end up testing things that have already been figured out. Yeah. And you're making the same mistakes that you know, we all have. So if you can avoid that, working with someone like yourself and have a stepped plan to get yourself into the new, the new decade here or the new phase of, of marketing, yeah, by yeah. all means. That company that was doing the billboards and I should introduce them to you. And, hey, uh, you've got my email. Yeah, yeah let's, get, <laughs> let's get them out of here. to reach you know? me. It, so last thing, I, because I could probably talk to you about theater all day. Do you still do any theater? Are you still doing any writing around that? Obviously, you know, busy with you know, revenue and associates. No, I haven't done theater in, in quite a while. But, you know, that, that training, that knowledge, that approach of storytelling and being human-centered and, and customer-centered, yeah. uh, you know, that, that still carries over. And so that's very useful so that, I'm not just looking at the data, but I'm really looking at the, the people that are behind the data. Totally agree. And for me, you know, I probably got a couple low grades in college because I was running our theater company at school mm -hmm. and it was awesome. And we had website, we had online ticket sales for the first time and all these other innovations I was learning really by, by doing there. So, but yeah. to your point, theater is such a great bridge, whether it's for writing or talking or presenting i'm obviously you've seen you on stage uh you're great and you don't you don't mess with the you know you're always facing the right direction so. <laughs> <laughs> well it's also uh theater is all about teamwork and that's yeah. central to success in, in business you know uh you know theater is not a marathon runner right uh, who, who can just go out there and do it you know 
by himself. That would be comedy. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's stand-up comedy. <laughs> uh, but, you know, to do theater well, you have to do it with a lot of other people. Yeah. And you have to, you know, develop those skills to be able to work with others. And that's how business gets done today. And you know what's funny is the um, the production, the actual show and that that exhilaration in front of a live audience is one of the best parts about it. But so is that teamwork that you mentioned too. Just working with those people for day in, day out to finally put something on is just such yeah. a cool experience. You're really in it together, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Any favorite, any favorite plays or anything I should check out when I do my research? Uh, well, I did the Boston premiere of a, of a play called Comedians oh. by, by Trevor Griffiths, who's a British playwright. Okay. And uh, Mike Nichols directed the premiere on Broadway. Really? So, so it was a, a big deal play in the 80s. It's a, it's a great story. It's about... Uh, you know, he's a he's a British playwright, so it's a set in a, <clears throat> um, I think Manchester or, okay. or Liverpool. It's a group of working class men. It all takes place on one evening, <clears throat> excuse me, and they're taking a class in stand-up comedy, like a night <laughs> a night school class, and they see it as kind of their way out of their working class jobs. And on this particular night, a talent scout. Uh, that the teacher has arranged for is coming from London to watch their acts. And so in the first act, you meet these guys and, and the teacher's approach to comedy. Um, the second act is just their stand-up routines to, like a, <laughs> to a bingo club that they go to that night. Uh, and then the third <laughs> act is back in the classroom where they kind of find out what the talent scout thought and uh you know wrap up the personal business between these these guys and so it's a, a really unique play uh, <laughs> sounds great, it, like a great setup it is it's uh it is really uh an excellent setup and uh what's it called again comedians yeah by okay. trevor griffiths okay uh so that was a terrific play you know um i actually ended up writing a play when i was deployed in iraq and the first couple, the, the, the majority, like 90% of it was crazy, fun, Call of Duty type stuff. Mm -hmm. um, fun because it was exciting, like very exciting, obviously pros and cons. But the last month I was on guard duty. And that is just, the, you know, 12 hours by yourself in some hot tower somewhere, yeah. middle of the desert, bored out of your mind. I remember reading <laughs> a, a James Patterson novel in a single shift finishing the thing being like, Oh, I'm sure I'm probably done soon. Let me check my watch and Nope. Got four hours to go or something. I was like, I'm not reading another book today. This and I'm, I'm, I'm done reading, but I wrote a play while I was over there and it was a comedy called the most difficult play ever performed. And it was about this small theater group that they were losing money for their theater, their funding. And, and so the local, um, furniture magnet who has like all these stores her son wrote a play and it's really challenging but she was going to sponsor them they really needed the money so they thought let's put this thing on but it calls for everything that theater companies like cringe if it calls for it there's fire there's rain there's snow <laughs> and there's even a gorilla hanging it from the chandelier the yeah. right and so it's like how do we even put this on and so you know the first part is i'm trying to figure that out and eventually and they put it on, but yeah. So wrote that over there. Um, and well, know. 
It sounds, it sounds interesting. Thank you for your service. Oh, uh, yeah. Thank you. It, it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you ever saw the musical Town. You know, I've for sure heard of it. I don't think I've ever seen it, though. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. It, it actually was kind of a, a minor hit uh, several years it was. ago. It, got, it was really popular for a while. Yeah. And, and the guys who wrote that were like getting nothing produced. And so they were just like, screw it. We're going to write the most unproducible musical. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to call it You're in Town. <laughs> right. And it turned into their, their, their hit. hit, their smash hit. Right. Jeez. Jeez. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you looked at the clock. This time is just like warped by. I mean, this has been awesome. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Absolutely. Casey. So, you th yeah, no, thank you for coming here. I mean, I've learned a lot about Bullseye Marketing. I really want to go get that book and even share that with some folks because, and obviously we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, having a focused approach like that is so huge. I mean, there's so many distractions out there. So I'm, you know, I'm so glad to have learned just a little bit here, maybe tip of the iceberg. And yeah, and, and people can go to Amazon you know, and they can either get the ebook or, or the physical book. Okay. <clears throat> I, I often read ebooks, but I got to tell you, the physical book is way cooler. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, they can reach me at, at Louie at revenueassociates.biz. Okay. And I'm on LinkedIn, of course, and I'm on Twitter at Louie Gadima. Okay. I love the audacity of throwing an email address out there on a podcast listened by millions of people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm an audacious guy. That's great, man. Uh, so, so email links. Um, so connect with you there. Obviously, revenue associates, uh, revenue and associates will will uh, yeah. link to that as well in the book. So this has been awesome. Thank you again. All right, Casey. Thanks again. Absolutely. And for everyone else out there, if you learned anything, and you, I'm sure you did, because I have like pages of notes over here, guys, and. Uh, if you learned anything, definitely share this with someone else. Get this information into their hands. Tell them about Bullseye Marketing so they can get some focus into their marketing. And uh, for everyone else out there, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will see you all next time.